0: With NairaBets, you can bet and watch live races from anywhere, play in live money contests, and earn more back with exclusive promotions. Earn your $200 sign-up bonus today with promo code Rewind200. Sign up today at nairabets.com or download the NairaBets app. And make sure to use promo code Rewind200. 200. And also, NairaBets members, test your skills and compete in live money handicapping contests this Saturday, January 30th. Play against other NairaBets members with a $300 buy-in with prize payouts through 10th place. Register today at nairabets.com slash contest. Welcome to episode 75 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl. And on today's show, we have Matt Bernier of In The Money in NBC. And we go over Saturday's Gulfstream Park Pegasus card with races including 1, 6, 7, and 9. And some angles that we talk about are... How looking at a first time starter's works can be more informative than the first time starting training stat. How Matt got haunted again by one of his favorite mares. And why, even when you lose a race, if your horse improves its speed figure, you can be happy with your handicapping. This is Red Ward Rewind. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Matt Bernier of In the Money and NBC. How are you today, Matt? I'm good, Spencer. How are you? I am good. We just got done doing the Friday feature for race number seven at Oaklawn for this upcoming Friday. How was your weekend overall with NBC, and how'd you do for the Pegasus card?
1: Uh, overall, I mean, it was, it was nice to get out of the cold weather. I live up in new England and you know, when you can go from 15 degrees to 80 degrees, that's always a welcome, a welcome ad. Um, as far as the racing itself was concerned, you know, one of the things that's changed for me pretty dramatically over the past handful of years is I don't bet nearly as much as I used to. And I don't know if it's a a combination of the work taking up the majority of the time and trying to just focus on being ready to do what we need to do or a, a number of different things. Um, So I didn't really bet a ton while I was down there. I just kind of stick to doing my little $500 challenge that I've played around with on the show. But um, I I did try, I will admit, to make a last ditch effort to get into the Pegasus betting challenge, but that didn't work out on Thursday afternoon. So um, overall, it was just a a fun weekend to be down there and and seeing some live racing again for, for a bit of a change. Haven't seen it since the Breeders' Cup um and the racing itself you know I thought all around you had a nice mix of things you had some some old hard-hitting veterans who showed up and and maybe sort of dusted off the rust a little bit and got back to the winner's circle we'll talk about one of them a little bit later on conversely you had some up-and-comers who could potentially be superstars down the line so um I think all in all a really fun weekend and the two Pegasus results they weren't sort of mind blowing, but I, I think they were representative. I think there were two very, very quality race horses who uh, could do some big things here in twenty twenty one.
0: Going off with the uh, the uh, dirt pegasus, obviously everyone's saying Nick's go. There's all this talk and chatter now. We're hearing service and in Navarro's name being brought back up with a horse like this. I think also everyone says, oh Bill Mo Bill Mott couldn't do it, why can you know Brad Cox? And for me if Bill Mata Hall of Famer, why can't Brad Cox be, you know, almost not talked about now? But, I mean, the man did win four Breeders' Cup races last year.
1: Well, and and I, th- so the, the big thing for me with Hidden Scroll, uh, and, and you know, there's only so much that you can get out in a tweet. People read it, and, and mm-hmm. it is what it is. But you can get more context when you can actually talk to someone. The horse did not run any faster than he's ever run before. In fact, it was only the third fastest race he's ever run so people are making it out. Like he ran a hole in the wind. He didn't, he, he kind of ran his race. He's typically a high 80 kind of low 90 type of buyer horse. And he did it with a class drop. It, so <laughs> like on, on a wet track that he's already won on, he's two for two on a wet track now. So I, I just, if you're, if the way that you're drawing up your, your argument is to say that this is going on, something funny is going on because hidden scroll can finally win a race. That to me is the silliest argument that you could possibly lay out. I, to me, the real red flags are when you get these $10,000 claimers that register 45 and 50 buyers, and the first start with a new barn, they fire an 82. That's not normal. And with older horses, I'm saying seven, eight-year-old geldings who have mm-hmm. been around the block a time or two, when they jump up five, ten lengths, that's when my <laughs> antennas go up. And, and I hate to say it, but that's what we saw with the service barn, and that's what we saw with Navarro's barn. That happened on the reg. I don't see that happening with someone like Brad Cox. And, and look, I I have no reason to believe that there's anything weird going on. He has great stock and I think he's a good trainer. Could something be going on? Hell, anything could be going on. I could walk outside right now in my neighborhood and get hit by a bus. It's not likely, (laughs) but it could happen. So I just, I, I can't stand that people only only operate on absolutes. Because that's, that's not reality. And and I have no reason to believe that Hidden Scroll ran any better on Saturday or Sunday, whenever the race was, because he's in a new barn. I think he just found a group that he could beat, and he ran his race.
0: I, I love the fact that you bring up a wet track. So, you, know, you always hear, you know, oh, he's a wet track horse. And I love what Andy Serling says, how if they both run 80s on wet and dry, they're not really, you know, better on either surface. They just kind of find the competition that they can beat. And someone else, you know... We were bringing up, we were talking a lot about Brad Cox. You know, someone says, Oh, well, Chad Brown's also, you know, been pretty cold this year at like 17%. And I'm like, Is everyone just going to say as soon as a top trainer takes a little bit of a drop, or like when Pletcher a couple of years ago couldn't run with his two year olds, that everyone's cheating and now they're off the drug machine? Like, this is getting kind of outrageous. Listen, there's a couple names that if I see a horse that comes into the barn, will I take an extra look? Yes. But like, I have old buyer or uh, old buyer, old DRF forms or of meant that I could go back through and practice that I can't because it's literally every race is service in Navarro. And I know exactly what it was
1: two or three years ago. And and that's the thing. I mean, it, it, there are people are going to go through ebbs and flows. And if it was as simple as well, every horse that he has wins, why didn't Mandaloon win by five in Louisiana down mm-hmm. at the fairgrounds last weekend? I, you know, I'm, I I just, to me, it feels like it's a bit of a cop out. And again, I, crazier things have happened who knows maybe something is happening but right now there's no evidence to support that and i think it's a really really dangerous thing especially for people in a position like this whether it's yourself me anyone within the money or anyone just in the industry in general that works sort of public facing boy you would better have (laughs) all your ducks lined up if you're going to throw an accusation out there like that that's not an easy thing for, for not just the reporter or the, the podcaster or whomever it is, that's not something that you can wash off. You go accusing somebody of something that they didn't actually do, your credibility is gone, and you're probably setting yourself up for some sort of a lawsuit. And conversely... Guess what? I don't need to be the one to break any news if something weird is happening. I'll let the reporters <laughs> yeah. do that. Until then, I'm going to go through. I'll make my opinions, but I, I'm certainly not going to sit here and start accusing people of doing things that I don't believe they're doing.
0: I love the fact that you brought up Mandaloon as well. Everyone said, oh, you know, what, what a stinker. What a terrible four to five shot. The horse ran went from an 82 to an 89 as a yeah. three-year-old. What's wrong with that? I hope he got a beautiful
1: progression. I hope
0: he comes back in the risen star and is three to two or three to one or five to two, I'll hammer him. And when, yes. he, and when he wins and everyone's confused, he improved. And you idiots all thought that a four to five shot to run 115 buyer in like his sixth, whatever start he was in in that race.
1: It's, well, and I just, you know, with him specifically that horse, I, I look at it and go. So if he had, let's say he went and won the way that he was bet, like people thought he was going. So I think he went off at one to two, mm-hmm. you know, if he had gone off and won by six or 7 we'd, the, the pre-race hype was that he could be, you know, potentially a Derby-type of horse, if not a Derby winner. And had he gone and done that, would would all of a sudden would it have been speculation about what's going on with the horse? Instead, <laughs> you don't hear a word about it afterward. He doesn't win the race, but to your point, he has that nice. I believe every one of his it starts, it's been seven points. Yeah. So I mean, he's taking that nice, slow, steady progression along. Again, I just I, I hate that people are so quick to start throwing out accusations of things when th- the guy has Juddmont Farms as a client. Like <laughs> he has the best of the best as far as stock is concerned. Are you stunned that they all run well? I like I what what am I missing? <laughs> I feel like I'm the crazy one. Are, are
0: are people stunned that Tom Brady's in the Super Bowl again when he got six other players to come play for him in Tampa? I don't think so.
1: So I'm up here in new England and people today, it's, it's like a disaster because the, you know, the bucks are in the super bowl and I have buddies that keep saying, well, you know, they should have just finished it off. Let, you know, give him the money, kept him here. We'll ride out these last two or three years They go, Tom Brady on this Patriots team this year would have gone nine and seven. And he would have been miserable. It would have been a replay of last year. I don't want to go through that again. Let him go do his thing, win somewhere else. And you got to hit the reset button here somewhere. So to your point, look, he went down there and he also recruited three or four other guys to go with him. on top of that unbelievably talented team with Godwin already there and Evans already there <laughs> yeah. and great. And, and all these other players like, okay. So, I, I mean, I don't know. What do you, what do you want? I, I just, I feel like people just want to, to cause controversy just for no reason.
0: And I, I feel like, you know, Twitter is just, and that's why I've stopped almost really talking on Twitter. I have a Slack with a bunch of guys from the Gallup that I talked to. I talk obviously with you guys within the money, but everything else like it's it's accessible at this point it's either cheating or someone's unhappy or someone puts out a winning ticket and the the pro VP guys are like you know oh well you missed you know ten percent of value here when the guys hit yeah. like a ten thousand dollar score I'm just I'm almost to the point where you know you look at a game like poker and the you know the two plus two four plus four forums are just everyone's being so nice and thankful and in here it's like oh hey I'm a newbie and they're getting door slammed in their face left and right
1: I I'm very tempted if I didn't have this position that I do, I probably wouldn't be on Twitter. And even now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very tempted to just basically unfollow everything and just <laughs> I'll tweet out a couple things here and there, promotional stuff, whether it's for in the money for NBC or whatever else, but the back and forth, and it's a shame because it's like anything else i mean you remember back when we were all in school mm-hmm. it's it's the one or two people that screw it up for the 100 or the 150 or the 200 it, and the other 198 out of the 200 they're all really good and they're having fun with it and it's it, you're using it the way you're supposed to and instead the problem is it's just it's an echo chamber and it just it's constant with the negativity and and i, I don't i'm losing my interest in even entertaining it and yeah. i made the mistake of going down that rabbit hole this morning mm-hmm. with this whole situation and it just it's a, i i just hate that people are so set in their ways and they can't think they can't entertain the possibility of something else being the case and uh frankly it's just not really a group that i want to be and, involved with
0: and for everyone who thinks that we're complaining i'm pretty young to this sport i've been following it, you know 10 12 years matt probably a little bit longer than me but for you, you people have been following for 50 60 years and you just you're complaining and upset and it's just then don't be a part of it anymore. Don't complain that you got the, the the Ortiz brothers are cheating you in you know two straight pick sixes, and then you're dumping you know five hundred dollars in the next pick five the very next day. Like, don't be a hypocrite in this sport. There's so many hypocrites, and you know if for people who you know every time they lose, they, it's not their handicapping; it's something completely different. I'm just to the point where you know on the bet squad, and I'm teaching all these new people, and I'm trying to explain to them what a beautiful game we have, and I have people you know over on the side of you know, one of those verandas and they're just complaining. It's like, it's almost disheartening in a way at some point.
1: It's, I I think it's also this, this isn't an ideal sort of thing to be gambling on. If you are not okay, losing, Mm -hmm. you need, you need to recognize that you're going to lose more often than you win. The idea is to make up for the losses when you do win. And I recognize that's not an easy thing to do, but if, if you're someone who just needs that sort of, affirmation of of cashing tickets i guess you could just sit there and play the favorite to show all day but Mm -hmm. long term you're going to lose money doing that and it just it's not it's not a game for people who don't like to be wrong and aren't willing to admit when they're wrong it's just the nature of the beast it's going to happen a lot more often than things going exactly the way you thought they were going to and the sooner you just kind of come to terms with that the better off you're going to be let's
0: kind of talk about your start now in horse racing. I, of course, learned about you uh, watching the TV show Horse Players. I uh, I found out that, honest to God, that you were just a, a younger guy, and I, I've been, you know, this was kind of back when, you know, poker was on its way out, obviously, with, you know, Black Monday or Black Thursday, whatever day it was mm-hmm. that they stopped doing it. And uh, I was looking for another game. My dad was a bartender in OTB. I kind of went there. I kind of, you know, I was – 20 at the time, and everyone in the OTB was 60-plus, yeah. so people didn't understand. They, they thought that I was just someone's kid, like just, you know. Then I, they saw I had a form, and they were very confused. They're like, what are you doing yeah. playing this game? And I'm <laughs> like, well, I'm trying to learn. You know, does anybody want to teach me? I learned a bunch of stuff in the OTB, some wrong, some right. What uh, what kind of got you started in the game? And, you know, talk about your progression, you know, from, you know, fledgling handicapper to now, you know, NBC on the big it days. Happened,
1: it happened really, really quickly, and um, it was just genuinely right place at the right time lightning in a bottle sort of thing I I had no interest in horse racing growing up Um, I was a freshman in college and that was in what 2007 or 2008 and I went back to my parents house one town over TVG was part of the sports package that we had at their house Um, fired it up one night started kind of playing around with it and the thing that I was most interested in was trying to figure out how the odds were dictated Mm -hmm. and why one horse was you know, two to one and why one horse is 20 to one. So I started doing a little bit more research, started reading some books. First book I ever read was uh, Betting Thoroughbreds in the 21st Century from Davidowitz. Um, that was sort of the the starting. And I, I've i always recommended that as to me, if you are genuinely green as grass, you don't know anything about anything before you start reading anything too far down, you know, a rabbit hole, I would start with that because that to me is the, the best, either that or something like, Uh, horse racing for dummies from rich ang one of those where it's just very basic and all you're going to do is try to lay that foundation build upon that foundation down the road you know whether it is with with books from quinn or from chris or from any of these other folks but you gotta you gotta at least know what you're talking about before you you gotta you gotta know how to to walk before you can run you know so that was kind of my my piece coming into it and then that quickly transitioned into tournaments and um the first tournament i ever played in was a live bank from the Daily Racing Form. Uh, I happened to win. Got my way out to Las Vegas for the NHC. Was the youngest one out there at that point. That was in 2013, and I was 23, 20, and... 24,
0: something like that. Because that's exactly yeah. I remember. Because I was like, like this young guns in there and playing yeah. with all these old g- <laughs> with all the older guys. And I was like, if he can do it, why can't I do it? That was exactly the kind of way that I brought it around when I was talking about with my parents about trying to become a tournament player.
1: Yeah. And really, I mean, I still think it is one of the best sort of door openers that you can have as far as this business is concerned. If you want to get into it, I think playing tournaments and I'm always fascinated. There are a handful of people who handicap publicly that play in contests. There are the vast majority who don't. And I've heard people say, Oh, but that's not really handicapping. You know what? I really think it is. I think it's, they're afraid of getting exposed and losing Mm -hmm. and guess what it everyone loses. So don't be don't be ashamed of it. You're involved, and guess what? You're you're in that position for a reason. You're probably going to have some success. It's not like you're going to just go over. You're never going to win anything. So I that's that's a tangent, but that that's something I think worth keeping an eye on. There are some folks who play, but many don't, and I think that's part of the reason. Um, so that whole thing started. I went out to the NHC, then the horse players show. They came. Uh, they gave me a phone call. I, I, I thought it was a joke be honest with you I didn't (laughs) think it was real they're like hey you want to go to the Kentucky Derby now keep in mind that year the NHC was late January as it it has been for you know basically forever except for this year Mm -hmm. Um, the Derby was only you know three and a half months away at that point or four months away so uh, I got the phone call shortly thereafter went down there that whole thing started uh, met a number of awesome people along the way Uh, at the very end of the show uh, the racing form called me I went down, worked in New York for about three and a half years, uh, then came back up. Uh, I moved back to Massachusetts, where I grew up, and then I've uh, uh, been here ever since. Now, actually, I'm in Maine. So that's kind of uh, the, the down and dirty of that. NBC started that first year, with really the first like month or two, when I was at the Forum. Uh, and then the following year, I did NBC along with ESPN during the Triple Crown, and, and I've been fortunate enough to work with all the, the great people over at NBC, uh, basically, ever since.
0: What is the hardest difference between being a podcaster and being on regular TV? Is it just the fact that, you know, you're always, like, you're always on the camera and it's just kind of like, don't look like an idiot?
1: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, for, for anybody who saw the broadcast this past weekend, uh, the second my second hit, um, I fumbled very badly. And the thing for me, and I was talking to um, the, my producer after the show, uh, Lindsey Shanzer, and i said for whatever reason when i try to script things out and i screw up one little word all the sirens start going off in my head and it's <laughs> yeah. like okay let's get it back on the on the rails but finish this thing as soon as possible as opposed to when it's either you know the the first segment the, the first hit that i had or any of the handicapping segments i'm just riffing i, I you've already gone over the races you already know who's who and who's going to be in what positions and I'm just so much more comfortable in that sort of situation. So for me, with with the NBC shows, I, I'm at a much better point now than I was when I first started. Granted, that was also, you know, almost six years ago, where mm-hmm. I was, I still felt like I was a kid then. I'll I'm, I'll be 32 in August this year. Like I I feel much more comfortable doing the job itself on a day to day basis when we're doing it. But I am much more comfortable when it is just okay. Let's, let's just roll with it and just kind of, you know, free flow as opposed to trying to, to bullet point all my stuff out. And I certainly need to work on that. I need to be better with that. I'm also not, I'm not naturally someone who is, um, uh, I don't want to say open to, but I, am very introverted. Um, I'm, I'm best suited in groups of like three or four people. And then outside of that, and especially with strangers, I get very, very shy. Um, I always have been when I was younger, the whole nine. So when I go to do interviews with whether it's a trainer or a jockey or an owner, um, I get very, very nervous uh, because I'm, I'm just I don't feel particularly comfortable doing it. Um, I can do it. And I feel like I'm slowly getting more comfortable. And, and I have people, you know, producers who are kind of helping me, you know, with sort of little things to that that can maybe make it a little bit more comfortable. But um, those are the things that for me, when we do these shows that I still do get very, very nervous for the handicapping piece I'm more concerned about is the horse going to run or not you know it's not even so much the presentation because I know I can handle that
0: and I I think too it's you say you're introverted uh my fiance for the first six months thought I was very outgoing and then like when we finally you know started to you know get down to the nitty gritty she she realizes like I'm very quiet when we go out with a group and she's like you're actually introverted I'm like oh very much so she's like but you have a podcast and I'm like yeah, I know it's just yeah. kind of blew her mind. She's like, but you're so talkative when you're doing, you know, video games, stuff like that. It's like if it's something that I am, you know, my ADD kicks in. I'm very hyper focused on it. I can talk about it, riff about it all day. If you throw, you know, like a math equation or like, you know, let's do board game with a couple that we haven't I've never met. I'm going to be the quietest dude in the room.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of it, too, for me anyway, is, you know, with the podcast or with with TV. You know, and that's the other part, too, with the TV piece. You know, people are like, oh, you know, there's, there's so many people watching, whether it has been with NBC or when I've worked with TVG in the past. You you don't really think of it that way or people that are listening to the podcast mm-hmm. or, or at least I don't anyway or watching, you know, on YouTube or whatever. I feel like I'm just I'm talking to this little box here, you know, yeah. and whoever sees it after that. I mean, I, I can't control that, whether it's two people or it's, it's uh, you know, for as far as NBC goes, if it's uh, 500,000 or a million people, mm-hmm. I you know, I, I can't. I can't do anything about that. That's out of my control. So it's not like I'm speaking to that group. They're not in front of me. You know what I mean? So that's, I think that's another little piece that at least helps me as far as my anxiety levels go.
0: Kind of tell me how beginning as a uh, beginner handicapper, how you've kind of grown up, like with the progression of it. Are you more of a class guy, speed figure pace? A lot of guys are into the race replays. What kind of handicapper are you?
1: Well, when I first started, you know, you kind of hear about the pillars, you know, mm-hmm. uh, pace, class all that jazz um class to me is class to me is a more sort of uh it's a more detailed piece than i think maybe many let on initially you know anybody can see the difference between n1x and n2x or grade one and grade three or any of that kind of stuff but i think really the nuance is you know a horse who runs 280 buyer speed figures one who does it in front running fashion against let's say $40,000 open claimers and one who does it in front running fashion against N2X types, you know, you probably had to work. And obviously you need to go through and see how the race itself played out, but you probably had to work a heck of a lot harder against the N2X level company than you did against the 40 claimers, the open forties, because just, straightforward for the most part you're going to have a difference as far as ability level is concerned so maybe you you want to naturally give that sort of upper hand while on paper they may look identical because they ran the same figs and they did it the same way you did it against better horses so i I don't think it's as simple as just reading okay well this horse ran against these horses it must be better there's there's more nuance to it than that And, and the same goes conversely if a horse ran an 85 against $25,000 claimers, and now they're stepping up to N1X, and the N1X group is littered with 75 buyer horses, I, I mean, just plain and simple, kind of how Andy Buyer took over when he was making mm-hmm. his figs. The horses aren't as fast as this one. I don't care what the, the class level is. The, the 85 horse is going to beat the 75 horses much more often than he's going to lose.
0: Can't agree with you more there. We actually do have a couple questions from Darren Sips at Darren underscore Sips on Twitter. He says... Do any specific trainers come to mind that specifically use sprint races to help obtain more speed and routes or vice versa, route horses trying to help gain more stamina for sprints? Do you have anybody who comes to mind when you think about that off the riff?
1: No, I I don't have a specific trainer that I think of like that. I'm more interested in sort of the, the running style of an individual horse. It can be, you know, the horse can be trained by anyone, but I'm, I'm always interested in the horses who going long, and this is sort of, this is not like, you know, it's not rocket science, I'm not breaking any news here, but <laughs> horses who show speed or have gone very, very fast going long, and then you turn back to specifically a distance of like seven-eighths of a mile. I think you have that sort of inherent advantage of some of these other horses who maybe they're going from six or six and a half out to seven, may not sound like a dramatic difference in distance, but that final furlong, that, that can all of a sudden become very, very daunting where you have a horse, let's just say, dropping out of a mile on a 16th two-turn route, and they showed speed, you're going to have that natural bottom already built up. So even if you don't make the front, you know, you're going to be forwardly placed, and you're going to have that stamina to finish the deal. Those are always the types that I'm interested in. And the same goes for, I mean, our, the pet angle is kind of gone now that we don't go down the hill at Santa Anita anymore. But, I mean, I loved the mile turf routers, mm-hmm. who were speed types. They got a little short at the end, and then you turn them going back down the hill six and a half. They're going to get out, run a little bit early, but they're still going to be probably two or three off of it. They're going to have that bottom where some of these other sprinters, they're just going to tie out down the lane. Again, that's sort of sort of an obsolete angle, it seems like, because I don't think we're going to be going back down the hill anytime soon. But that's that would be, and I hope that answers Darren's question a little bit. I don't have a specific trainer that that kind of comes to mind for. Um, I'm more interested in that sort of profile for an individual horse at any given time.
0: I think for me, and this brings up DRF Formulator. I, if I'm looking through specific cards and I see a bunch of stretch outs and turn backs and guys who are you know 20, 25 percent with that move, go into Formulator and guess what? Hard work pays off. Spend an hour or two in the rabbit hole, look at their specific winners doing that, and see what they're you know see what they're kind of doing. You know, is it is it two sprints and then the stretch out, and kind of get a pattern in your head, and then you might be able to find you know a couple guys who sure they're 20 percent with that move, but maybe they're off on other training acumen and then they're still going to be you know five eight to one in the morning line you might get a solid price obviously looking at 20 percent trainers doing it it's going to be a much lower you know pool of trainers but that's the way i would do it's just it's finding the patterns in racing and for one thing for me is a lot of people they they go top to bottom in, in the uh past performances i go bottom to top i start at the lowest i don't care if the race was six years ago just, you know, what what have they done leading into the race and just try and go for there? For, for all this Oakland, I'm kind of just looking at what they did in 2020 and seeing, you know, what becomes of it if they ran a race, you know, close to the buyer par, etc.
1: I used to take a, a field uh, basically from, from in to out, mm-hmm. which I think most people do, you know, from inside post to the outside post. Um, Kevin Cox, the the Brooklyn cowboy from the horse players show. He, I know he, at one point, I don't know if he still does. He would go from outside in because you occasionally have those instances where for whatever reason, the public doesn't realize a certain horse is drawn in from the AE list Mm -hmm. and completely gets overlooked. So that was his sort of methodology. I've changed in recent years. I've always been somebody who is more interested in having a horse that is in front of the majority of the pack than trying to pass many of them. Uh, it's only sort of grown, and, and J.K. actually brought it up many, many moons ago, how he's he had gone about doing it, and I basically, that's how I go about it now. I look at the time US pace projector and go from the front back, who it, the projector thinks is going to be on the lead, and then I'll take a look and see, you know, do I think the horse has enough figs That are going to be competitive or is it just going to be kind of a cheaper speed that's going to fade down the lane okay if that's the case let's move on to the second horse the third horse whomever it may be that's sort of the way that i've gone through whether it's dirt or turf sprint or route i'm more concerned about okay who's going to be on the front or who's going to be forwardly placed and let me work my way back there as far as like a a flow is concerned
0: for for me the way i kind of start i I also hear for tournament Sometimes tournament players will start from the last race to the first race because the last races mean so much more. For me, I start at the favorite, and I go just right down the list, right down to that 50-to-1 shot, and I kind of just judge, never removing horses until I am finally through the whole entire field, and I kind of go back up through, you know, okay, this horse isn't fast enough. There's no speed in this race. There's three closers. Okay, cross them out, etc. Because at the end of the day, if starting with the favorite, I want to know who I'm trying to beat in every race, and if through 10 races I find, you know, five races where I've tossed the favorite out, now I know where I'm allocating most of my money at.
1: Totally. And I think that's one of those things where the moment you find, I I think that's the most valuable piece. I know many people will look at it and say, if you can find that single, that's the most valuable piece in whether it's just an individual race or a multi-race sequence or a contest. I'm more interested in, can I find that favorite that I absolutely hate? Can I find the horse that, you know what, kind of to what you had alluded to with the Friday feature over on my pod this week, Mm -hmm. you know, a horse like Accession who, he has the most name recognition in that field, Oakland 7th. You know, I don't really like a heck of a lot about him. If he wins, uh, tip my cap and say good on you. But if I can pitch him from the start, and you did that with Hidden Scroll in, in the multi-race sequence on Sunday at Oakland, mm-hmm. I'm with you. That's the way that I would prefer to go as opposed to trying to find that one single, even if it's a you know a two-to-one shot, that, that I, I really, really love. I'd much rather find the vulnerable favorite than the heavy favorite.
0: Let's go ahead. Let's start looking over these four races that we had picked out from Gulfstream Park on Saturday. None of the uh, none of the uh, Pegasus races. Just you know, the two favorites winning. Nick go. We all know what that discussion is going to be like. I thought the turf winner. I thought it was funny that Pletcher ran. What was it? One, three, four in that race. I guess he's becoming the new uh, the new Chad Brown of the uh, Naira Circuit, and Florida Circuit. But uh, let's go over the first race. Was an optional twenty-five thousand N one X going one mile on the turf. What you like in here, Matt?
1: Well, it was just an interesting race because you go through and you take a look at a horse like uh, Apurite down on the inside who was 7-2 to two on the line and took the majority of the money. This is a kind of horse that I'm always going to be a little bit leery about at a shorter price simply because the only win to date came in gate-to-wire fashion and there was no guarantee that she was going to make the front. Now, the pace projector indicated she would be on the lead, but there were a couple other horses who had shown a little bit of early foot. I was most interested, to be honest, and I was disappointed with the performance, in the 5-Arencia. Because I understand she had some pace to run at in that most recent start. It was her first time going two turns on turf. But I like the way that she finished. I understand it was against starter allowance company. And if you were kind of concerned about the overall quality and stepping up in class, it makes total sense. But I didn't think she was that far off. And I thought she might offer a little bit of a price. I was wrong on both accounts.
0: For... Me, I was very interested in a horse that ended up scratching out Hera, Paco Lopez, uh, Carlos David. For people who don't know, uh, it's me and Marshall Sterling's little joke. If you see Carlos David in any past performance sheet, his formulary numbers are off the chart in, like, I think every single possible way you can look at on turf. I think him with with Paco was, like, a 46% win rate, so him scratching out, I have no idea what's up with that. But when you see Carlos David, definitely take a double look with that type. Apertate was actually my top pick in the uh, Daily Gallup season, our first week, and I just... I like the fact that usually you see a lot more horses, you know, that first time against winners, really, really struggle. This one ran fourth, just missing by a little bit less than three lengths. I thought it was a good enough race. Now you get the layoff. Todd and uh, Louie are obviously always going to take money there. Orencio was one I had also circled. Uh, Toffin for Brian Lynch, uh, just another one slowly, slowly improving. Uh, Bad first race on the dirt. They go to turf first time for Lynch. 61, then a 69, and a 78. If we see a little bit more improvement off the layoff, Toffin was another one that I thought could get it done. But overall, a puritate for me. Any other horse in here? with a, I know Orencio was 3-1. Uh, to one. Any long shot that you kind of liked in here that I thought could uh, scramble the board up?
1: I mean, if you were looking for someone who perhaps could offer a little bit of value but was – I hate to say more or less a, a complete unknown. I thought vividly was sort of a wild card from a contest sort of standpoint. I could have seen a horse like that, depending on how you projected the pace to work out. But this was a Philly who over in Europe, she had basically run every single way you possibly could. She had come from way off of it. She had stalked and she had gone to the lead. Uh, and obviously we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit. She came with a nice flurry at the end.
0: Uh, for me, like I said, it was a prayer Tate. Let's see who wins the open here at Gulfstream park right now. Mm.
2: Racing at Goldstream. From the rail, purite was away quickly, but up on the outside, what a butte Puts her head, best foot forward early, and she'll take the advantage from Tauphin, who comes away in the top flight. Holyanna's on the outside. Orencia held up in traffic while racing in fourth, then it's a purite out a bit deep on the course, and Fury of Vikinga. Length and a half to sticking together, followed by Two Cent Tootsie. On her outside is the gray follow the flag. She's third last. Second last is Moral Reasoning, and the early trailer is Vividly. In the run around the first turn, Toffin is a bit keen, but she's in front by a length. Up on the outside, it's Beauty who's there second toward the Rail of Purete. Now races into third. Wide on the course and is now fourth, covered up while fifth is Orencia. Two and a half clear of Furia Vikinga. Then comes sticking together. She's about seven lengths off the lead through the opening quarter of 23 seconds flat. A gap of another two to follow the flag, racing together with two Cent tootsie, Three back to moral reasoning and still at the back is Vividly. That's the 11 of them, Three and a half furlongs left to race. Toffen still the target. She leads a length and a half. What a beaut second, Apurite third. Orencia guided to the clear by Corey Lannery, fourth and in range. Back at the inside now, fifth. Fury of Vikinga trying to run home from the back is moral reasoning. Less than a quarter of a mile from home. They're at the top of the stretch. Toffen still the target and tries to kick away. Apurite is there, second. Orencia down the center, not lifting up her much on the inside and Fury of Vikinga. Final eighth of a mile, Toffen trying to get home Here's Apurite taking aim late. Toffin at the 16th pole is still in front. Here's Apurite on the outside. Here's the finish. It's a photo finish. Nice finish to start the day. Did Toffin hold on or did Apurite get her? Vividly was storming home late in 134 flat.
0: And the number four, Toffin got it done paying 1840 with an 84 buyer. It was a really, really fun race. If you're at the track, even fun to watch, you know, where I was from uh, my home here. Really, really tough beat for me with a, a Puritan running second.
1: Yeah, and you know, interesting race to go back and take a look at sort of post because Toffin goes right to the lead. You look at the fractions; they're fast. Timeform US has them color coded red, indicating that they were fast all throughout. Uh, I I love the ride from Joe Bravo, and, and something with a horse like Toffin that I think this is this works for any level of handicapping, any surface, any distance, whatever it may be horses who have already shown versatile running styles. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is a filly who has won basically any way you want her to run. She's won from off the pace. She's won from on the pace and she's just missed from just off of it as well. So knowing that, okay, I like the fact that Bravo was aggressive, but had she not made the front, I still think you wanted to at least consider her and at a big, big price. You know, I'm not surprised that somebody ended up looking at her saying, you know what, she shouldn't be fifteen. And she ended up getting hammered down, I think, in half to about eight to one. So I thought it was a good ride from from Bravo all around. I thought it was a good performance from the Philly. Um Apurite, I don't know if you want to sit here and say, you know, that my sort of concern is still warranted that she still hasn't passed a horse. She was gaining a little bit at the end on Toffin. Um but all in all, I, I thought things were reasonably okay for her. There was a beautiful ride on Fury of Vikinga from Hector Berrios. Saved every inch of ground on a 65-to-one shot. And it looked like she was going to be in uh, in the thick of things there, turning for home. And, you know, we touched on vividly. I, I think she's probably the one out of this race that you want to keep an eye on just because that was her first start in many, many moons. First start here in the States. First time LASIK. So um, she's one that maybe if you're uh, somebody who has a bit of a horse watch going on, maybe you want to throw her in there.
0: Going back to Vividly, for me, and this is just a crutch I probably have that I need to get rid of, when I see a couple uh, horses come over from, uh, to North America and don't win first or second time out, I feel like they still end up taking a ton of money each race in and out, and this is one that if she's another low price, I probably won't want any part
1: of. That's fair, and, and you know what, I mean, I don't think that's a, a crazy statement either. I mean, we do see these Europeans, and we just have that sort of preconceived notion, and I think for the most part, it's accurate, but you get to these lower levels. It doesn't necessarily always work out that the European horses are better than our American horses on grass. Um, I just like the way that she finished there. And granted, if you want to sort of play devil's advocate, if you do buy into the fact that the pace was on the hot side and she had everything go her way there. The only reason I kind of want to go against that idea is because, you know, for the most part, the, the pace held up pretty well. I mean, you know, the top three horses, uh, half mile into the race, they were separated by just what, I don't know, uh, two or three lengths. So it's not like it was one of those paces that completely disintegrated. So I want to just at least see one more from vividly. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but uh, she will be a fraction of the 15 to one next time out. But I I think she at least deserves some, some consideration.
0: I think for me, like you had said, also looking at the winner next time out, obviously it will be a jumping class And maybe if they can, you know, maybe if they don't get the lead, like Matt had said, you know, they can sit two, three back and still make a nice run. Hopefully Joe stays on because I I always like when the aggressive rider can stay on next time out. Sometimes they just, you know, oh, this is just the pickup mount for today and they're off the the horse. I like it when uh,
1: the aggressive riders can stay on. There was a horse uh, on Friday afternoon in the seventh race of Gulfstream. I can't remember the name of the horse, but in a very similar situation, stepping up in class Prado road, last time out one in gate to wire fashion, the exact same thing happened against better horses on Friday afternoon. So just because a Philly like this does this at eight to one national step up next time out, that doesn't mean that she can't go right back and do it. If she fits as far as numbers go and race flow goes.
0: Let's move on to race number six. It was a maiden special weight, going seven furlongs on the turf. Got some nice pedigrees in here, including a uh, million-dollar purchase from uh, – Yeah, this yeah, – Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those races where – I don't know about you. I, I'm at a point now where unless it's absolutely imperative to play a certain sequence, <laughs> I like I like to sit out these races where there is basically no form to go off of other than trainers and pedigrees, but especially at this time of year, because I feel like you could potentially see something pretty special, maybe a harbinger of things to come. And I think we have that not just with the the winner, but I, I think there's another horse in here, too, who could end up being something down the road.
0: When I got to this race, I'm not to say I was tired because I'm obviously doing the Oakland stuff and I got a bunch of other stuff going on. But this is a race where I was like, OK, nothing to look at here. No buyers. OK, I don't like the outside pletcher being at a tourist. Oh, here's the million-dollar horse with size on? Perfect. Done. Circle it and move on. And and, ma- and sure, it sounds like it's lazy. I'm not doing all the work, but cur- curling's 175000 If they're going for a million, this has got to be a pretty darn good Curlin. When, when you look also through, I I really just, and we'll talk about it later when we talk about the winner, how much I messed up on that. The other one I had circled was full-court press for uh, Bill Mott and Junior. Junior's been so hot down there, and I always like seeing the bullet work. As the last workout, including the Gatework two back. I thought this one could be interesting. Uh, Stage Raider is a half to justify, and everyone's saying, "How does this horse not take more money?" And my whole idea on that is, it's not Chrome, it's not Arrogate, and it's not Pharaoh. Justify, I think, did win the Triple Crown. I just don't think there's going to be a big splash when we see, you know, maybe when the babies come out. But all these the half stuff. I remember uh, the day after Pharaoh won the Triple Crown, his sister ran it. Anthony and paid eight to one. I was like, "Go!" I was like cracking up the Brinks truck to make all the money coming to my house.
1: Well, and, and I think the other thing too, is, you know, we all get seduced by, you know, who the, the siblings are and the pedigrees and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how often have we seen, you know, it can go one of two ways. You can have a brilliant family and then have just an absolute dud for whatever reason, you know, this next one that comes along just can't pick their feet up or on the flip side of that, you can have a pedigree that looks like it's basically going to be a $10,000 claimer. And it turns into a millionaire. I mean, you know, it it can go any number of ways. And and to be honest, until they get out there on the track and run, you really never know.
0: For me, it was the number three in the Daily Gallup contest. I'm guessing from what you said, Matt, it was a pass for you just because of just no
1: form in the race, right? Correct. But if I was going to lean anywhere, it was the three Ghazali.
0: Let's see who wins and breaks their maiden here in the sixth
2: right now. From the center, it's Rabdan who breaks alertly up on the outside, speed for Stage Raider in between horses, full court press and Prevalence moving up on the outside and Marching's not far away as they line up for early supremacy. Rabdan has a neck in front, Stage Raider is right with him up on the outside, Marching is third. Prevalence is an early fourth, Ghazali driving through with the rail fifth. Quantum Leap is sixth, rushing up in traffic And Holy Redeemer. Up on the outside in full court press, wide on the course in Traveler. Then it's back to Exalted Charm and pregame and the trailer is Longtail. and for the opening quarter as they round the far turn. Three wide, Stage Raider up to Challenge Prevalence for the lead. Rabdan is between horses. Up to fourth goes Holy Redeemer. On from fifth and marching, trying to run home from there. Full court press. Wide and not progressing is Traveler. Two better than Quantum Leap, who's called it a day. Trying to rally from the back is Exalted Charm as they round the far turn. This leader, Prevalence, traveling pretty well for Tyler G. A quarter of a mile from home. He lets out a notch. He gets a response and leads two. Stage Raider is all in second. Redeemer's bid was short-lived. Full-court press is underway on the far outside, but they'll have to fly if they want to beat Prevalence, and let's be serious, nobody's beating Prevalence. Prevalence under hand-and-heels handling. Look at him go away. Prevalence, the son of Medallia Doro. What do you say? Wow. Prevalence in an absolute jog. He won by double digits. Stage Raider was second. Ghazali ran third, and full-court press was fourth. Hello. Prevalence in 123-flat.
0: And then number six, Prevalence gets it done, paying 1760 with an A9 buyer. Is it Hidden Scroll 2.0? It wasn't a wet track, so I'm gonna say no. What say you, Matt Bernier?
1: I, I thought it was a really, really sparkling performance, especially on debut. For uh, this is another thing. It's it feels like it's stating the obvious, but I feel like it does kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit, and not just at these big stages or levels like this. When a first-time starter for a barn that doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily one of those that has them cranked up ready to go first out of the box, when they go out and win, but also do so showing some pretty solid early foot. I know these fractions weren't electric. Forty-six for the half, going seven furlongs is, is far from blistering, but it was honest enough for a horse like this out of Brendan Walsh's barn, who he seems like a conditioner who takes the time with the animals to get them ready to go or for them to really peak. I thought this was a phenomenal performance. You break it down by the sectionals, 22, 23, 40, 24, 36, 12, and two for the final eighth of a mile galloped out. Well, the pedigree is there. The dam is a sibling to better lucky. Oddly enough, not just because of better lucky in there. She's a multiple grade one turf route winner. The dam side is, there's a lot of grass. So, <laughs> yeah. and we know that medallia Doro, there's no issue there. If you were ever going to consider going to the turf with this horse, um, I think that's something they could always fall back on. You certainly aren't thinking that right now. Uh, I'm sure everybody involved with the uh, Godolphin uh, operation is thinking uh, bigger and better for the first Saturday in May, and and rightfully so. I thought this was a a sparkling debut from this horse. Uh,
0: And this is something, too, when I I look back. The work, I saw 9% for the first time trainer kind of just crossed it out. I should have looked more at the workouts. There's not many 9% first-time out trainers that have workouts like that on a horse's work tab, and I think, too, that... When you see 9%, usually you'll see, you know, a sub-dollar ROI. Brendan's got a $4 ROI, and this is exactly why, because this horse will come back out and pay $17, and you're so confused by it. Uh, The number 10, Stage Raider, obviously decent second. Like we said, they have to justify maybe more things to come. And the three, Ghazali, I'm not going to say I was disappointed, but again, I had this talk with Michelle Yu about a month ago on the pods, just because they spend $60 million on the horses. That mean the horse does not have, you know, a problem or won't be able to win a race. We look at the green monkey. We look what
1: happened there. <laughs> see, now I'm actually quite – I'm not disappointed with the effort. Um, obviously, it would have been nice to see a little bit more. But at the same time, I, I'm a little bit encouraged by it because of – I think it's one of those things where just because it doesn't work first time out of the box – doesn't mean that the horse can't improve. And I kind of think this is one of those, what I would call educational debuts, Mm -hmm. where he's in behind horses. He's got a ton of kickback in his face. He's still very, very green. You saw him, he was very goofy with his lead changes. But for him to rally the way that he did, effectively from second to last, and he thought he galloped out quite well from what I could see, the head on cut very, very quick after he hit the wire. (laughs) But, you know, he's the kind of horse that I wouldn't totally write off. And I also, I look at him and say, He's going to be that sort of horse that the longer, the better based on his yeah. pedigree. I mean, you take a look at some of the horses down on, on the dam side, uh, higher power alternation. I mean, these are mile and a quarter horses through and through. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if this horse ends up being something. Maybe it's not going to be for the Derby, but it, w- it also wouldn't surprise me. We're still early enough where if he can break his maiden here pretty quick and they throw him right into a stakes race, who knows? But I, I wouldn't write this one off entirely just yet.
0: Let's move on to the third race, race number seven. It was the grade three, Marshall's River, going one mile on the turf. This is one of my favorite races of the day. Lots of different ways that we could go. Where did you decide to go in here, Matt?
1: I, You know, and this is going to sound genuinely like the proper red board. I've always liked uh, I, I, Zofel, Zofel, <laughs> however you want to pronounce her name. I, I, she's a horse who I think she has been sort of the, the unlucky one to have to go head and head with the likes of, you know, uh, newspaper of record and uni and, and bow recall. I know those were all in the most recent run, but she's run some bang up races against some really nice horses. And she hasn't had the benefit of great trips in all of them. Uh, I've always thought she was a nice mare. I didn't know that. I thought she was this nice, but th- this, if this is what is, she could be going forward, I, I think she's going to be something here in 2021.
0: I will say for me, I, I was kind of stuck between Zofel and for people who don't cross out that last race, when you see, newspaper, Bo recall and Uni, You have to like kinda of relook at your handicapping. I'm sorry, but yeah. in, in this field those horses are one to five. Totally. She's obviously dropping in class. It's against much it, it just cross that race out. Oh, there's a ninety two and eighty six and a seventy nine. A little bit of improvement. And look that ninety two came first off of a layoff. Where are we here today? First off a of layoff. Sure it's not as long a layoff as it was, but still I, I ended up going outside. Sweet by and by for Jose and Safi Joseph it's a big tra- time trainer change out of Anthony Dutro, and the two best races last year were at one mile. It's from from teaching Sabrina uh, as a newbie. She's always saying how, you know, oh, I like it because this jockey was on for this race, or, you know, all the mile races are, are good. The mile and 16s, you know, she just wasn't as fast. It's kind of made me, you know, go back to the beginning of when I was trying, you know, and refocusing my pillars and exactly where to look at. And I thought sweep by and buy would be a really, really good price. Obviously didn't get it. But just, it was kind of 50 50, and I just, you know, ended up going with Sweet Buy and By. Let's see who wins the grade three at Marshall's River right now.
2: Racing in the Marshall's River Stakes. Good beginning at the rail for Bell Laura. Our baby Ruth will run with her. Vigilante's Way comes away in the top flight. She's three wide and angling over. From the high draw. it's sweet by and by who's getting over to race with the leaders. Race favorite Zafel is parked at the inside about three lengths behind. Just ahead of her went Evil Lynn with lovely Lala three wide. Three at the back include Nico's Dream. At the rail, Great Sister Diane. And from between them, it's Tuned. And the charge around the first turn, there's seven lengths from first to last. And our baby Ruth has delayed, going an opening quarter in 23 seconds flat. Vigilante's way is up alongside in second. And on the far outside, sweet by and by follows along third. Laura is at the rail fourth, followed by Evil Lynn in fifth. On the far outside, sixth goes lovely Lala. Seventh is the race favorite, Zafel. Eighth is Nico's dream. Ninth is great sister, Diane. And if tuned wins, she'll go last to first in less than half a mile through a 46-second opening half mile. Into the far turn they race. Our baby Ruth has been under pressure throughout. Vigilante's way. Poised to strike second. Three wide, sweep by and by third. Evil Lynn is together with Belle Laura about three lengths off the lead. Now it's Zafel who's making ground. Gafflione puts her into the clear and gives her an opportunity to kick on from there. From last, Toon swings into action. She'll have to go four or five wide after three quarters. And 109 and one may turn for home. Zafel under a full head of steam. And here she comes now with an eighth of a mile to go. Zafel has Powered pass, sweet by and by. Up on the outside, Bell Laura tries to get a slice, but a slice is all she can hope for as Zafel has the Marshallers River all locked up. It's fell by two and a half, sweet by and by second. Bell Laura was third, Tuned ran fourth in 132 and two.
0: And number three, Zofel gets it done ping, 760. Beautiful 94 buyer. Like you had said, if this is the best we're going to see, you know, this one could be special this year. and Again, if you cross out that last race, a little two-point progression just looked really nice doing it.
1: Well, and and really, to me, that just a game, not only did it precede a layoff, but to your point, Spencer, earlier, I mean, you don't want to hold it against her, the Phillies that she ran against in that spot. But other than that, she hadn't run a bad race since coming over to the United States. And I know people probably look at that Alstall Memorial down at the fairgrounds last February and say, well, what about that? she was about a hundred wide coming off the far turn. And for her to rally the way that she did, she just flattened out a little bit at the end. I thought it was a massive effort. And if you want to call that a good performance, she really hasn't had a bad, bad step at this point. So I see no reason why with the absence of the newspaper of records, the Unis, the rushing falls of the world, you know, that sort of mile-ish range right now, anyway, it feels like that's wide open. And why can't it be a horse like Zoffel who? You know, when you come home in 22 and three, that, that's racehorse time. You're cooking down the lane and, and by no means was this, you know, I get it. It's Gulfstream X, Y, and Z 46 for the half down there on, on turf. I don't think that's an appalling race. I, I think it's one of those where it was a fast pace, but I don't think it was unbelievable. Something that was off the charts. And as you can see the runner, second and third, they were relatively close to the pace throughout. So I, I think it was just a matter of a quality mayor, possibly hitting her best stride here at this point in the year. And and who knows? Hopefully we can see bigger and better down the road.
0: And I think that sweep by and by is a great point to bring up ability figures. Everyone's like, you know, we talked about Mandaloon. Oh, the horse ran terrible for a four to five, one to two shot, whatever he was. Sweep by and by, went from an A3 off of a distance I didn't think she could run at her best at and bumped right back up to a 90. Sure, it wasn't the 94. She ran three back now. But just... I'm fine with this race. The horse went off at a solid price at 7 to2 was almost four to one, and I lost on the square. Guess what, people? You lose 30 out of 70, you lose 70 out of, out of the 100 base races you bet. You need to try and make those 30 winners count. And this one I thought was good value, and I got beat by a horse that, you know, when I'm 50, 50, I'm going to always take the better price.
1: And I think this is an opportunity where second off the bench, she's already proven that to be a successful angle for her in the past. Just go back to that most recent form cycle. Uh no reason to think that she won't be able to take that sort of step second time out in her next run as well.
0: And also for people who, you know, oh I was stuck for fifty fifty, the exactor for a buck paid twenty bucks. So Can't I mean for <laughs> for two horses that are sub four to one, I mean, this is the yeah. kind of race that like okay, you don't like anything horizontal, you don't you think the win bets are too short. This way, you have to look in every pool. People who complain, "Oh, I lost, you know, most of my money by the fifth race, but my favorite bet of the day was Zofel." You have to be patient, and you have to just find stuff. When I'm starting to do my Oakland write-ups going forward, I'm going to try and leave. You know, I had some betting analysis the first day. I'm going to try and leave. You know, my what I think my win odds would be for certain horses. You know, if I had done that on opening day, I probably would have had three or four winners because my third choice won. I think four races. And I'm obviously taking them at six to one and a couple favorites. I put on top loss, but I wouldn't have played them at sub two to one. I'm playing the six to one shots that I think have a better chance.
1: That's an instance where I will have, I will have no sympathy for someone who comes to me and says, you know, I loved the horse in the ninth race, but I blew all my money before then. Mm -hmm. I would say, well, you, you clearly butchered this thing. Then you should have saved half of your bankroll for that one individual race. Forget about the rest of them. Play funny money on those if you really have to. But if you love something later on, you better make sure you got some cash that you can use.
0: Or also the the fact that if it's a later race, just come for the later sequence. If you don't like anything (laughs) in races one through five, why are you at the track?
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) Let's move on to race number nine. It's the last race. It's the grade two inside information, seven furlongs on the dirt. Cinnabunny to me, I thought was going to be a little bit funny as a favorite in this race. What do you think about the favorite Matt and who was your choice?
1: Well, Bunny is an interesting horse just in general because she was one of those, it seems to be a private purchase out of that run at Parks 2 back, and she showed up in the Sugar Swirl, and in all honesty, it was a bit of a disaster kind of trip for her. Things just didn't really work out for a horse that wants to be forwardly placed. She wasn't really alert from the gate. She eventually made up quite a bit of ground when it was all said and done over a track that I thought was a little bit kind of speed. So that I think that race was probably better than it looked, having said that you see a you see Brad Cox, you see some of the figures that she's run compared to the other horses in the race. It's not like she towered over them from a speed figure standpoint. So at a shorter price, I was going to kind of be against her or just kind of let the odds board dictate. This is a difficult race for me because some of my favorites were in here. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I, I love Sally's Curlin. I always will. She's that kind of horse that she has helped me more often than she has hurt me. I, I get it. She didn't quite pan out in some of the big races that I'd hoped that she would run well in. It is what it is. wanted to take a shot there, but she was to me at this point with the form that she was coming into the race with anything close to that nine to two was going to be a pitch. I just, I just didn't think she was coming into it in great shape. The horse that I, I always have liked, and I'm embarrassed to say I had nothing on her is Pacific Gale because you go through her running lines. She's been very, very competitive against really, really good fillies and mares throughout her career. The problem is she just hasn't had her picture taken in a long, long time when I looked up and we'll talk about it in a bit and I saw not only did she win, but she was some massive <laughs> price. I said, you got to, what are we doing here? Come on. And I, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of the things that makes this game as funny as it is because you can have a horse like this who she's been a hard trier. She shows up, she runs a race very infrequently. Does she completely drop an egg? But she just isn't quite good enough to get there. It ain't quite good enough to get there. And then she can put it all together on any given day.
0: So for people who don't know about the Daily Gallup handicapping season, it's a a head-to-head format. We have 72 people in here. Big shout-out to my man Mike doing all the scoring after every race and giving us, you know, four race, you know, updates, et cetera, every single Saturday. But I I had run about second in six races, and I wasn't so much betting that as I was betting the Oaklawn card. I was kind of keeping my eye on it for the later races. And I'm like, thank God I didn't bet Gulfstream today because I would be so livid I'd be ready to put my fist through through my my computer screen at this point. And I, I just... I circled Pacific Gale and I didn't play her in the contest and I I said she's gonna take money. she's gonna be one that just is gonna be like the, the funny pick of, of the uh the higher echelon handicappers. And I just this this is my time, Kathleen O'Connell, just the state bred race, two back, off the turf in the slop, was a big race, but then followed it back up with not the giant regression that you usually see. Ended up going off as the favorite, but only dropped five points and ran really well in that N2X. I just thought that this was the right time to kind of jump up and take a shot against Grade State Company, and obviously other people did too. She was five to two on the line, and uh, yeah, we'll leave it at, that. at this point. For me, it was this is my time. Let's see who uh, who gets her picture taken in this grade two right now.
2: Racing in the inside information stakes. From the far outside, Sound Machine was quick off the blocks. Here's This Is My Time moving to challenge. Cinnabunny put into play today. She was away much better than last time, and she'll put ahead in front. From fourth in Bronx Beauty, outside fifth goes Pacific Gale. Pietti Bianchi is next, four ahead of Dreen Marie. And left behind last is Sally's Curlin. Down the back stretch they go, and the two favorites get acquainted with Cinnabunny on the inside. This is my time to the outside, their heads apart. Racing from third, that's Sound Machine, then Bronx Beauty and Pacific Gale. Pietti Bianchi is the gray nearest the inside, about three lengths off the lead. A gap of another four to Dream Marie and five more to the trailer, Sally's Curlin. They leave the backstretch and move on to the far turn. Twenty-two and two for a contested opening quarter. Less than three furlongs to run. Cinnabunny by a neck. This is my time. Is second. Bronx Beauty. She needs some place to go. Sound Machines covering ground. Pacific Gale's got a shot, but she also needs some place to go. Two back to Pieti Bianchi. Then comes an outside running Dream Marie. Sally's curling a long way behind while trying to muster a stretch bid. As Cinnabunny turns first with the lead. Cinnabunny with three sixteenths to get. She leads by two. Pacific Gale charging. At her on the outside. This is my time between horses. But here's Pacific Gale powering up now to take the lead for Toby Morton and trainer John Kimmel. The 2021 inside information to Pacific Gale. She won by three. Second, this is my time. Third was Pietti Bianchi. Close after that, Dream Marie charging at Cinnabonny.
0: And the number six, Pacific Gale gets it done at 16 to 1, 3420. Mutual 95 buyer. I thought she would take money. She took no money. And of course, not having—I should have. What I should have done is I should have had Pegasus up on the TV screen and Oakland here. Instead, I was watching the Call of Duty uh, opening challenge for the new CDL <laughs> season. And uh, yeah, this one—this one hurt my soul a little bit here, Matt.
1: Yeah, look, I'm—I'm I'm with you because the—the the last time I had a substantial wager on her, I always keep eyes out. But the last time I had a substantial wager on her was that Harmony Lodge <laughs> back at the beginning of June. Yeah. And around the far turn at the top of the lane, I said, "She's winning this thing." And she's going to pay almost $50, and she just, she just kind of was even down the lane, and she didn't really lose a ton of ground, but she couldn't quite get over the hump, and I was like, you know what? Uh, maybe this isn't the time, and, and the logic for me was, you know, you take a look at those two runs at Gulfstream prior. They are both off the layoff. I don't know if she loves Gulfstream. Her overall record there is a little bit suspect getting back to Belmont. She's run very well at Belmont in the past. Well, I thought I had it all. And, and that again, one of the funny things about this game, I really feel like I laid out a pretty good scenario, a good argument, and I thought she ran to it. She just didn't run quite good enough that day. And I was like, well, okay, not great. And, <laughs> you know, uh, it is what it is. And then when I see this, not only does she win, not only does she pay $34, but it happens at Gulfstream. And when you watch it live, and it's even crazier when you watch the replay, she's never a loser. <laughs> She's never a loser, and and Pacific Gale has never been that horse. So I don't know what happened, but she was just feeling herself this day, and and she she put the boots to this field. Now, having said that, if you want to kind of go to the – I don't want to say the negative side, I don't know how good this field is in the grand scheme of things. I I would imagine the water's going to get much, much deeper at some point. So this 95 buyer that she earned, I look, I'm happy for her. I'm happy for the connections. I like the Philly a lot, or the mayor at this point. She's six. You know, I'm not going to be chomping at the bit to go and bet her in her next spot if she's four to one against much faster company. Just because I, I wonder if this was just the stars aligning for her.
0: I will, I will say two things on the favorite Cinnabonny. Everyone talked like this horse couldn't lose throughout the week. Uh, she did. She also lost last time out, uh, first time Brad Cox. For everyone who thinks that that's the uh, untouchable angle of the week, yeah. Um, I think this race was exactly what you said. We don't know who she beat. I think when you come back at the end of this year and say, "Oh, who ran the inside information back in January?" Maybe one or two of these will also be stake winners. Possibly, I would take the I would take the under on that. But it's like you had said, it was when um, Bar Gold won the Breeders' Cup at 50 to one a couple of years ago. Everyone's like, "How ah, does this horse win this race?" Or in the in the juvenile two years ago, uh, stormed the Court. It's horse racing. If there's ten races a day and one doesn't make sense. Don't focus on that one race. Focus on the nine that you think you have an idea of why horses ran a certain way. We're not computers. We're not supposed to know exactly why every horse ran the way it did.
1: Quite quite literally. I mean, you just brought up Pacific Gale to me is sort of – I've had two versions of her. I've had Pacific Gale and I had Bar of Gold. And <laughs> Bar of Gold, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I remember I had bet her at 16-1 to 1 at Saratoga. She was a three-year-old, and she lost to uh, – uh, kieran stone street horse and i can't remember her name but at the top of the lane i'm there with a bunch of a bunch of friends are right around and i don't know if we had a show that day or what but i was actually i went to the rail because i know i'm I'm betting this thing i'm getting down we're gonna make some cash top of the lane she's i don't know even money even money to win Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and i can't i'm gonna have to look it up now the 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 philly the stone street philly just kept finding and i was like you gotta be kidding me and of course me being a dope i don't have the exact or the other way. I just liked – it's just one of those things where, you know what, I said I'm going to go down go down with the ship. She either wins and I get it all or she loses and I get nothing. No, she couldn't quite get the job done. And then we're out of Del Mar during the Breeders' Cup, and I go, are you, are you serious? Right now? <laughs> you can <should> pay $130? <laughs> so so Pacific Gale and Bar of Gold, they've got some, some parallels for me. And, um, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is.
0: Couple minutes left here on the pod after I've made Matt bring up nightmares of what his last few years of <laughs> horse racing has been. Tell us about this $500 challenge. Obviously, I listened to your pod. The $100 challenge was a uh, no bueno. D- no bueno was the way to <laughs> it, I think. Um, <laughs> $500. I think. I think it's interesting because everyone always tries to do these bankroll challenges, and it's it's hard to represent. You know, I tell people this all the time. Somebody is going to put $10,000 to the window. You are going to step step up and bet ten ten dollars on the same horse. The bankrolls don't matter. It's the ROI that comes back. Should you be playing pick fours with a $50 bankroll? No. Play a occasional double and mostly win bets and a couple across the boards, and you'll do all right. These people who have, you know, 30 bucks for the day, and they're six deep in the first leg of a pick four, and then go single, 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 because they think they have a good idea and they just want to get some action, is ludicrous to me.
1: Yeah, so for me, the, the idea, the initial sort of thought behind the $100 challenge, now the $500 challenge, was something that could be a a pretty regular segment for the podcast, but also something that wasn't such an intimidating task for whether it's new players. I feel like I have a lot of newer folks to the game who listen to my show. It's not going to be something that you're overwhelmed by hearing some of the numbers and what people are betting. You know, when we go through, if I ran down what I played in the BCBC, somebody brand new to the game would probably have a heart attack. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, it's a different you're playing a different game. So the idea for this little challenge was to have a few plays every day, three or four plays. And you know what? And I think that's the thing that I, I need to be more. For the record, it's, again, not going great. I think I'm at, like, 10% overall as far as winners go. The bankroll is just – it's not – it's probably down by about a third. The the big thing for me, though, is on a day-to-day basis, if I were betting these horses, like, betting them, I would probably have maybe one, two a week, and I'm going to bet $100, $200 to win on them. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit there and play the way that I'm playing – these these this challenge at i'm not going to sit there and just kind of chip away and bet my you know my ten dollars to win on so and so because again in the grand scheme of things yes i do like these horses but not all of them are going to present the value come post time that i would need to actually make a a legitimate bet on them so i'm kind of doing it knowing that and it's it's the you know people think it's it's complaining it's the blessing and the curse of the public handicapper when you put things out well in advance I'm not going to sit there and then throw out the caveat that, oh, well, by the way, of the 15 horses I threw out last <laughs> week, I only bet two of them. Well, like, okay, well, that what, what good is that as far as just sort of a, not only an entertainment standpoint, but from an exercise standpoint, it's not a – I don't think it's representative of what many of the sort of weekend warriors are are doing and approaching the game with. So I wanted to do something that felt more along those lines as opposed to me just sitting here waiting for these golden opportunities that – that I like. And to be honest, when that happens, I'm playing doubles as opposed to playing just yeah. straight up to win. So it, it, that was, that's just an easier way. I think for me to sort of present a fun little exercise and for whatever reason, the two times I've done it, it's been a disaster, but we're lucky enough where it's early with this time around that, you know, we still have plenty of time, plenty of bankroll to write the ship. And, and the other thing is it's not necessarily, it's not a time sensitive thing. You know, I mean, this, this could last, the next two years if I really wanted it to. It's not like I've yeah. set a certain deadline where I need to churn the ten grand. It's whenever it happens, it happens. But I'm gonna probably have two, three a day for three or four days out of the week, maybe five days, depending on how locked into the racing I am. And you know what? If it works great. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. It's something to to just kind of play around with. But I wanted to do something that I felt like, you know, someone with a much smaller bankroll could could theoretically do, and even if they didn't have success, hopefully it would be a good learning experience where they could then use that to their advantage going forward.
0: Well, I'm sure the fans can't thank you enough for the great stuff you do for In The Money, NBC as well. That's going to do it for this podcast. Where can people find you on social media?
1: Uh, At Bernier underscore Matt on Twitter, the same on Instagram.
0: Thank you so much for coming on, guys. Uh, This podcast will probably go up probably tomorrow morning I'm gonna hopefully because you're gonna try and do it tonight correct Matt
1: Uh, I'm gonna throw mine out this afternoon yes Uh, so I'm gonna finish that send it over to producer Craig that should hopefully be up later tonight Uh, usually we're pretty good about that sort of thing absolute worst case it's first thing tomorrow morning but um, I think it's good we'll have a couple we'll have some synergy between these two
0: liked it a lot hopefully do it again soon thanks for coming on I appreciate it man and now It's time for Barry Meadow's weekly tip. This time we're going over Lasix. And don't forget, you too can pick up the Skeptical Handicapper
3: on drpublishing.com or Amazon. Skeptical Handicapper tip. Lasix is the brand name of furosemide, an anti-bleeding medication that is injected into more than 96% of North American thoroughbreds on race day. It's likely this number will drop, however, as new regulations are coming into view, proposed by a coalition of major racetracks that will eventually ban Lasix. Under the new rules, beginning in 2020, two-year-old horses will not be allowed to be treated with Lasix within 24 hours of a race. Beginning in 2021, the same prohibition would extend to all horses participating in any stakes race at coalition tracks, including the Triple Crown races. In the meantime, Lasix remains the most popular drug for North American racehorses. By the way, it's banned virtually everywhere else. And there's a big gap between horses who use Lasix and those who don't. We looked at the more than 1.2 million starts by horses on Lasix between 2014 and 2017 and compared their results with those of the approximately 54,000 starts by horses who did not use Lasix. The Lasix horses won 13% compared with just 9% for the others, and the ROI was 12 cents per dollar higher. We also looked at Lasix used by first-time starters, and again, horses beginning their careers on Lasix did much better. 10% wins versus 7% wins, and an ROI 15 cents better per dollar. Is Lasix a performance enhancer? Can it mask the use of other drugs? There's controversy here, but it seems likely that in the years ahead, Lasix won't be a topic of horse racing conversation. For now, prefer horses that do use the drug. I'm Barry Meadow, author of The Skeptical Handicapper, Using Data and Brains to Win at the Racetrack. Thanks again to Barry for all those
0: wonderful little tips and tricks throughout the uh, the coming weeks. Hopefully, you know, you all enjoy as well. I got some good feedback on them. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's present is Pierre Thomas Forentel, our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.
2: More than sees